On Rebuilders today, we are chatting about civilizational decline. Just a small topic. Uh, looking at, you know, the question that many are asking, is our civilization in decline? But also, how does the framework of civilizational decline also points towards the potential of civilizational renewal? And what does this tell us as the church? What is the special source ingredients that turn around moments of decline? Great. Well, we look forward to sharing this with you. As always, if you want to know more about the resources that were mentioned during this episode, you can subscribe to our mailing list by heading to rebuilders.co. Let's get into it. Welcome to Rebuilders. My name is Liddy and I'm here with Mark and Daniel who were bringers of pastry today. The pastries are back. Well, let the people hear. Let the let the let the listeners of Rebuilders hear. We've heard you. We've even traveled overseas and heard this face to face. We've yeah. taken the rebuke. We have been negligent on the pastries front, mm-hmm. but today, no, the pastries are back and there was actually a wonderful symmetry to getting of the pastries. Daniel suggested a poetic symmetry. A poetic symmetry. If you will. So Daniel suggested um, that we get pastries, <laughs> and he's actually crunching on a raspberry. <laughs> I don't think you hear that. This is not oh. ASMR, Daniel. ASMR eating a pastry. <laughs> ASMR <laughs> pastry. With so Daniel. carry on, Mark. Sorry. So long-term listeners will remember that the pastries began as we coped with lockdown. Yes. And often we would be doing lockdown in here, just us. Uh, we were able to broadcast. <laughs> we weren't We weren't doing all of lockdown here. No, no, no. We no. would come in. We'd <laughs> we come into a record. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yep. And, um, and then often here in Victoria, in Melbourne, uh, Victoria's our state, Melbourne's our city, we would be watching the 11 o'clock update with our state premier, Daniel Andrews, who's the, like the equivalent of the governor of our state, mm-hmm. probably, the, probably the second most powerful politician in our country. And uh, we would watch his update and we'd hear the numbers and what was going to go on. So that was sort of like this this daily thing, pastries and watching the Daniel Andrews update, second yeah. most powerful politician in Australia. So It got us through. It got us through. So um, <laughs> we just then, so the, fast forward to 2022. September. And, uh, September 2022, almost two over two years. Actually, sorry, just a quick one. This is the first September in three years we've had we've not been in lockdown. Wow. Yeah. Well, well that makes the pleasant. symmetry oh, even more stunning. Trifecta. Sir. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, the listeners are really <laughs> waiting. Oh for no, this I'm building it up. Oh, I'm yeah, building no, this up. I'm building this you up. You ham it up. Um so so <laughs> did you say ham? <laughs> yeah, I did um, say ham. No, this is a kosher oh, ham joke. Ham would have been good in my pastry. Sorry, yeah. continue. Okay, so Daniel and I take <laughs> off to get pastries. And we pull around the corner to a new cafe that's actually opened recently and um, which the office is visiting regularly and uh, we knew they had good pastries. We pull around the corner and I go, there he is, the premier of our state who we watched all those days in daily press conferences. He's mm. just sitting out the front having a coffee. Yeah. Daniel Andrews having a coffee at the front of our local thing, the second most powerful politician in the country. He just, he's just having a coffee in the sun. Yep. We grabbed our pastries. And uh, yeah, it's just a natural symmetry to the end of a, of a period of our lives. Yeah. Mm. It was like one or two security, but we couldn't even really tell that there was security until we're like, oh, there's a little walkie-talkie yep, poking at that pocket. Then- I knew you were thinking the same thing. I noticed both of us would be like, oh, there's, there's the pr- Premier, Daniel Andrews, and then, and then within minutes, where's, is there security? Where yeah, is the security? Where? Both of you would have been looking shifty as. <laughs> they did look at us <laughs> when did. we walked past. Yeah. They were like, do you notice they scoped us? Mm-hmm. As we walked past, yep. But it was actually pretty good security. You couldn't really tell who was security until we'd been <laughs> watching them for about five minutes. Well, there was that drone that was just following us around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, predator, predator drone, like you know, kilometer up in the air. Yeah. Um, but there you go. Fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. So we've entered this episode with not only pastries but a fantastic a- anecdote. Yeah, 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 I love it. And I guess in a way, as you've already uh, flagged, it kind of marks the end of an era, the Ooh. beginning of a new one. Yes. yes. Um, Pastries reign supreme. <laughs> yes. I hereby declare grey zone over. The pastry epoch has begun. Uh, make it rain. Uh, <laughs> well, um, on that very triumphant note, uh, I'm just going to let you guys know what we're going to be talking about today, which is uh, civilizational. Decline mm. and renewal 
through pastries. Well, <laughs> actually not through pastries. I'm sorry to mm. disappoint you all. The other week, Mark, you spoke, um, you delivered a sermon at Red um, and you were speaking about civilizational decline. Mm. Seemingly an odd topic for a sermon. Why was this important for you to chat about and what are we going to be exploring today? Well, a couple of reasons. So firstly, there's lots of conversation about civilizational decline online and people are revisiting this sort of concept. Um, and, you know, you look at, I guess, many of the long-term trends that we've been following um, on Rebuilders, mm. even going back to our Networked World series, um, you know, has been around issues of significant crises that cascade through the global network. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as, you know, increasingly people sort of, you know, are moving from, you know, we've had a period of talking about the pandemic and it depends, it's different in different countries. I'm very aware of that. Um, but, uh, you know, now we're talking about things that we were sort of foreshadowing a while ago, you know, supply chain issues have turned into energy, energy issues, mm-hmm. you know, looking at the European winter, Ukraine war, um, you know, and a lot of questions being asked, you know, like um, where is the sort of Western culture at? Where is developed world culture? Where is global culture at? Are we in some kind of sort of irreversible decline. Um, and, you know, we've got a lot of cultural memories that sort of move around ahead in terms of that. We think of Rome and, you know, Rome mm-hmm. and, you know, people talk about the decline of Rome. So I think that's one reason to talk about, you know, where we're at with that. And, you know, is that an accurate way of looking at culture? Mm. But I think also it's a really helpful way of actually also looking at institutions. Yeah. Now, I would posit that any human social order that we do together uh, where we do repeated patterns, which are aiming towards some kind of human flourishing in the future, yes. is a good way of d- looking at institutions. So I think churches, Christian organisations um, are all institutions, so are cities. And, and and even the word civilization is really interesting. There's probably a little bit of a recoil from the word civilization. how in later years it was mistermed uh, yes. in terms of sort of civilization versus barbarism. And even you do see that in Rome. Um, but if you look at the word civilization, you know, it's interesting, it comes from the sort of um, Latin word of, you know, civics or civil, mm. meaning a social order, the way that humans get together and do things together for a purpose. That's really the basic basic understanding of it. So I think that's actually an interesting way, of, or even city, you know, yes. cité in French, you know, it's like from civics, it's like humans are social creatures, as Aristotle said, and we tend to, you know, get together and do stuff. Um, so looking at also the civilizational sort of decline uh, model or framework is a really helpful way to ask the question, where's the church at? Where are mm. Christian organizations at? And we know lots of people listening to this are leaders and, you know, that then um, gives us a framework to understand. But also this podcast is also about renewal. Yes. So, you know, like how do, can institutions be renewed? You know, can cultures be renewed? Um, and this is an interesting way of looking at that. Okay, great. Well, um, let's start by looking at these stages yes. of uh, civilizational decline. Um, so you've put these together. Yes. So to, this is my little version of it. Yes. But if, if just quickly to give people a history of this, I mean, this has been something people have been interested in for a long time. Mm. Um, you know, if you go back to say the Roman satirist juvenile who basically juvenile basically, you know, he's the, the famous term bread and circuses. You know, he talked about Rome's sort of decline, um, you know, of when, you know, the, 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 the sort of leadership of Rome sort of just was feeding people bread and giving them entertainment in the circus, circuses. And there's almost a sense of that Rome had entered a moral decline and, you know, talk about the fall of Rome. It's hard to sort of say when was the actual decline of Rome because Rome continued in some sort of form or, or another for yeah. some time. But, you know, probably probably the most famous um, person who really looked at this in sort of a formulaic way was the Arabic um, medieval scholar Ibn Khaldun. Um, and he, he looked at these different ways in which different generations mm-hmm. of people, you know, built something and then it declined. And, you know, he's often been called the father of sociology. Um, and yeah, he looked in a sort of systematic way, but then, you know, people like Spengler in the 20th century, um, you know, Oswald Spengler, you know, became really popular again in the 1930s when sort of Europe was sort of looking at decline and all kinds of ideas bounce off this. Um, you know, I wrote about the beat poets, um, Jack Kerouac and Ginsburg and stuff in my book, The Road to the Change the World. They were reading Spengler and saw themselves as he had this term of the Fedayin who were this sort of grouper on the edge, mm. uh, which also I think creep pop up in June. Um, mm. You know, so these ideas uh, sort of uh, like uh, just infuse our culture. Think about science fiction and dystopian 
um, motifs are often built upon a concept of decline. You know, we talk about things like cyberpunk where you had in the 1950s when there was a sense of more optimism about culture, you had very shiny futuristic visions of the future. Yes, yes. Think about the first sort of Star Trek, the future was sort and of this. Jetsons. Jetsons and, you know, but then you have something like Blade Runner where it's like the future is actually not that great. Yes. Um, and sort of as sort of nihilism permeates our sort of view of the future. So this is something that's everywhere. Um, some people push back on it. Um, Bruno mm. Massais, who we've quoted on this podcast a number of times in his book about the USA, he sort of pushes back on civilizational study. He says it's more an evolution. Um, but I think it's still a helpful way of, um, you know, framework of just looking at how things grow, decline and so on. And um, so I've come up with five stages. So I've sort of taken the Kaldun uh, sort of model and sort of made my own version of it. That's what I used in the sermon. So we can we can have a look at my little version of it. Great. All right. Well, we're going to start first generation. The first generation builds the civilization. They build it. Well, yeah. So any, any institution. So again, too, it's not just necessarily civilization. It's any, anything that people come together. You often find a first generation that builds something. You know, uh, even Keldon talked about this. They had to sort of come together for a particular reason. <sighs> And, uh, you know, these, in a sense, are the sort of pioneers, the innovators, the creators. This is sort of the startup at the beginning. Yes, yes. You know, uh, and, you know, very much when you look at this, this could be a church planter starting something. Mm. You know, there's a vision. It doesn't exist in the real world. And, you know, it's, it's, it's brought into being. And it's mm. interesting, too, because I think there's actually quite an interesting biblical sort of motif here. You know, mm. you look at you know, Genesis 1, I think it's verse 26, you know, where it sort of go forth and multiply, you yes. know, rule and subdue. This idea of humans are, you know, in part of our imago Dei, our image of God is that there's something in us which is created by the creator, therefore we have sort of the ability to create, to create and the drive yes. to create. So creating something out of nothing, which again to mimics, the you know, creation ex nilo, yeah. you know, at the beginning of, of, of scripture. Um, but in order to build, the first generation often will have to sacrifice. Yes, okay. It's tremendously hard to start something from nothing. So not only have I come up with sort of the – what there's the first generation, what it does is builds it, but also sort of came up with this idea of there's almost an ethic that goes with that. Yeah, yeah. So the first generation builds it, but the ethic I would say is they do that through sacrifice. Yeah, okay. You know, and and – they have to, you have to give a lot. You know, Jesus talks about in the Gospels, counting the costs before you do something. You mm. know, uh, this generation will often, you know, count the costs, sacrifice the poor. You know, it, it's, it's very rare to see anything born with a half effort. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Okay, great. Well, once I guess it's, it's set up and this, this group have sacrificed, uh, the second generation maintain it. Yeah. So often if you think about it too, like there's a first generation um, and, you know, think about maybe a generation who migrates to a country, their parents migrate to a country, they mm -hmm. might keep going with some of the the um, traditions from their previous country. They, they respect their parents of how much their parents sacrifice for them. So in a sense, the second generation maintains it and almost the ethic they have is service. So they're mm -hmm. relationally still connected to sort of their parents' generation. And look, I'm being loose here. This is not an exact science by yes. any means. And I'm not saying it's, you know, like always going to be grandparents, parents, kids sort of deal. But the second generation, what tends to happen is the first generation has these ethics of sacrifice and they tend to codify that. It's mm -hmm. passed on. Yes. You know, they teach their kids this. They teach the organization this. They teach the institution these values. This is why we did it. And you remember. Yeah. You know, in, in Australia and New Zealand, you have something called, you know, the Anzac, um, you know, tradition, which is the Australian-New Zealand Army Corps, which is our, you know, sort of in many ways sort of births of the nations. Um, Canada has something, you know, similar, uh, you know, where, you know, in a sense – as sort of former British colonies, we almost came to sort of national identity in First World War when we had to yes. sort of fight for our, our ourselves and and you have this thing which is less less we forget, you know, yes. always remembering the sacrifice of yeah. that first generation. So, you know, following generations will go and they'll have things of remembrance. So you want to keep – in some ways the first generation comes up with some sort of social technology or some kind of idea which makes a difference in the world and is moving us towards flourishing. So the next generation – 
they move more into an ethic of service. Yes. They're not sacrificing because in a sense a lot of the sacrificial work has been done, but they're servicing, maintaining that what that first generation fought for, the breakthroughs that they had, that that keeps going. Mm-hmm. But it tends to be codified. Um, and you know, often people sort of have this really binary between uh, it becomes institutionalized at this this stage. Mm-hmm. You know? And I do talk about, I think it's in Disappearing Church, the difference between, oh no, it's facing Leviathan, um, where I talk about um, this, this sort of false dichotomy between the organic and the mechanical or the sort of like organic idea of a community and then it becomes institutionalized and that's the death of it. Yeah. I think institutionalizations are much more developmental. It's not like yes. a binary thing, but yeah. second generation maintains it. It's kind of, um, you've just made me think of, of another example that's probably uh, less sort of defeatist as, you know, yeah. something becoming institutionalized, but uh, languages. So um, pigeons and creoles, these are yes. languages that are uh, emerge in sort of isolated communities. And a pigeon is something that's created, um, I think I'm getting my terms right, correct me if I'm wrong, anyone out there. Um, but pigeons are created by a first generation and it's a language that functions between mm. um, two communities that haven't originally spoken this language. Mm. It becomes a creole, it becomes an established language when um, the second generation have picked it up and start learning it. Interesting. Um, and then, you know, that's a way that people can connect and find mm. identity through using language. Mm. So there's an example. Uh, So the third generation, let us move on. The third generation assumes it. So, yeah, so first generation builds it, second generation maintains it, third generation assumes it. So in a sense, the breakthroughs that the first generation has Mm -hmm. eked out of nothingness, that the second generation have then institutionalized and codified and some sort of flourishing has been established. You know, this might be a health fund this could be a town, this could be a school, this could be a church. Yes. Um, and what they do is they put these things into play that have uh, created flourishing, but this third generation assumes that that's actually the natural way of the world. Uh-huh. So the first generation had this idea of before they created the thing and after they created the thing, and they created the thing in order to make the world better and to yes. move towards some flourishing. Yes. The second generation has a living memory of that. Mm-hmm. But this is almost, again, like the grandparents fought for it, the second generation sort of learnt from their grandparents why it's important to keep going. The third generation just assumed that it's always been like this. So to move yes. to the migrant example, the first generation gets on a plane, moves to the other side of the world, yeah. works hard jobs, absolutely, you know, graphs so that they, their kids can go to university. Mm-hmm. Their kids go to university, get good jobs, they integrate into the culture, lead a middle-class life, and then the third generation assume that's what's always it's been like. Yes. Their grandparents have distant memory who turns up at family events and they talk to them but they're – the, the sacrifice that they made, you know, is is distant from yes, them. Yes, okay. And what this does, so if the first generation has an ethic of sacrifice mm. and the second generation has an ethic of service, the third generation has an ethic of entitlement. Yeah. So they entitlement is wanting benefits without taking any responsibility. Yes. Um, and so, you know, that's where in some ways I think that decline starts to settle in. So. Yes. You start to assume like it's always been like this. I don't really have to do anything to keep it going. Yes. This is just how the world is. And the flourishing that others fought for is simply assumed and taken for granted. Mm-hmm. So nobody is working towards mm. keeping it going essentially. And almost the momentum of previous – you're coasting on the momentum of previous pioneers. Yes. Okay. So then we move to the fourth generation and the fourth generation neglects it. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's like a car – you know, like um, you might have a car that you assume you just you, d- you don't have to like. Just say I've got a car for three years, and I just assume that I don't need to take care of it, and I never get a service, and I never pump up the tires or check the oil or whatever. Mm. I can do that for a little bit, but then if I pass that on to you, and you go, "Well, I'm not going to do any of those things," at some point it starts to break down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is what happens here. So the fourth generation neglects it, but also what can happen at this point is entitlement will inevitably lead to some form of corruption. Now, this could be moral corruption, this could be economic corruption, or it just could be a corruption of the breakthrough innovation that the first generation had. Yeah, yeah, got you. So this could be, um, you know, a company decides that it has this purpose or an NGO or a church, but the actual mission at this point is so drifted that it actually becomes corrupted in of itself. Yes. Or the other thing that can happen is the benefits that have been eked out by – so it could be like this. It could be let's do the migrant thing. First generation, moves countries, huge sacrifice, works 
you know, night shift, second generation gets to go to university, appreciates it. Mm. Third generation um, just lives off the benefit of the previous generation. The fourth generation throws all the money away and, you know, finds himself, you know, living on the street because they've lived a dissolute life or something like that. That's a sort of, you know, very crude uh, outplay. But it's really that idea that inevitably entitlement will move to some sort of corruption of the individual or the mission or the institution itself. Yeah. Okay. So finally, I mean, things are starting to look a little bit uh, dismal here. Mark. Yes. Um, the, fourth, uh, the fifth generation buries it. So the original thing that was built. Yes. The original breakthrough is forgotten. Mm. And this generation buries the institution. So there's sort of a natural lifespan, you see, of many institutions. Um, and again, we're painting incredibly broadly here. At this point, it buries it. Now, interesting, I'd say, just to go through again the ethics, first generation builds it, they have an ethic of sacrifice. Second generation maintains it, they have an ethic of service. Mm -hmm. Third generation assumes it, they have an ethic of entitlement. The fourth generation neglects it, which creates an ethic of corruption. And the fifth generation buries it and there's grief. Mm. they begin to look back and think what has been lost. Yes. And they're like, oh, hang on, things are actually quite bad now. Man, we've really messed this up. So there's a sense of grief. There's a sense of looking back. You know, you think of someone like, you know, uh, you know, or you, you would see people looking back in the, in the dark ages at the sort of um, – Ruins of Rome, you know, and like, how did they manage to build um, yeah. columns and buildings like that? We, we don't know how to do that, and you yes. miss it. You know, there's a there's almost nostalgia can really come yeah. in at this point. Okay, um, so that's sort of the cycle. All right, so I mean, I'm <laughs> I'm not seeing it as a cycle just yet because no. you you've painted it as um, this decline. Yes. Um, let's just take a step back and ask why why does decline actually happen? You've started to kind of get yes, at it. Yes, Okay. So, again, to going back to the, I guess, diagnostic. So, a number, I talked about a number of people who've come up with this sort of um, uh, pattern and then well, what, why did they see this? So, Juvenile, I mentioned before, he saw it ultimately that Rome became morally corrupt because of comfort. Okay. So, there's a sense that people become so comfortable – that leads to luxury and luxury inevitably leads to some form of moral corruption. Which so, is essentially you've got yeah, entitlement and corruption. Yes. Um, yeah. There, yeah. Um, and so comfort inevitably leads to a moral decline. You know, and these are the stories we hear again. Rome is sort of often put up as the example of this, you know, mm. where you see, you know, later Roman life is, you know, sort of debauched and there's the Colosseum and, you know, sacrifice of people and the people watch, you know, paying to watch animals chewing up people. You know, it's like mm. it's, quite, it's quite a moral, uh, you know, sort of morally decrepit um, sort of vision. Um, Ibn Khaldun, he saw it as uh, the Arabic – uh, Arabic medieval scholar, he saw it as the first generation had to have a sense of social cohesion. They had to yes. come, band together. Yes. That sort of created this almost drive, this communal drive to something. But as comfort kicks in, it begins to fragment and individualism takes over. Again, fascinating. I mean, he's running the medieval period, father of modern sociology, as many call him, and he outlines that individualism is is something that happens in, in decline. So then what happens is things become so disparate in the later stages that there is no cohesion, no mm. community, no overarching thing that we're all fighting for. And then he said someone else will come in. So this is sort of Spengler sort of went here and Ibn Khaldun that eventually they'll get conquered right. by – Another. So, a very popular book at the moment is Ray Dalio's, oh, I've forgotten what it's called, but he's sort of done his own Global Orders book, um, the sort of American investor. And he, um, you know, he he's, talks about a new rising power mm -hmm. will then conquer the weakened, disparate, corrupt, bigger power. So, he looks at things like debt and education and so on. Um, and he buys a little, Graham Allison's written a book called Destined for War. Um, which is about China as a rising power mm -hmm. and the US as, a, as possibly a declining power. Um, going back to the Peloponnesian War with Theudicities, I can't say that, Theudicities, Theudicities, it's a tongue twister, mm -hmm. um, who wrote about how, you know, Sparta and Athens were like these two powers. So that's another idea. Spengler sort of looked at that. So part of the, the in the 1930s, this fear that you saw in liberal democracies was that the rising forces of Bolshevism or communism and fascism had mm -hmm. more of an energy. They were more like willing to sacrifice and they had greater um, 
Elon to sort of fight these sort of corrupt, you know, comfortable, you know, yes. elites. And, you know, so that's sort of, that's fear sort of you see a little bit in the popular thing at the moment. Um, and even in the sort of competition between the US and China you hear about at this point in time, you'll see this sort of in the internet in different places in the news. Um, so, you know, part of also like what I – I would also look at this. Possibly what happens is, and this is what I was sort of trying to write when I wrote my very first book mm-hmm. called The Trouble with Paris, was that almost this detachment from reality also begins to happen. You become so detached from reality that the culture falls into fantasy. Yes. Um, you know, and Wally is an yes. example of this. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, to use a <laughs> go from the Peloponnesian War to Wally, um, you know, in that people become you know, almost uh, they, they, they trash the world through their – I mean, it's partially as moral corruption in that movie around, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're unable to walk and they just – or another one is um, Idiocracy. Have you ever seen that? Idiocracy? I don't think so. Oh, okay. So it's like a dumb comedy. I think it's got one of the Wilson brothers, the third least famous Wilson brother. Oh, Luke Wilson. Luke Wilson. Um, and in that movie, basically, it starts with you've got – a guy and two couples – sorry, a, a couple who are like this upper educated couple and they're like, oh, we're going to have a kid but we want to finish our university. We're going to have a kid but we want to get our apartment right. We're going to have a kid. So, they keep putting off have a kid. Yeah. And then you've got this other guy who's sort of like working class. He's just like popping out kids left, right and centre. Yeah. So, they follow that trend line of what happens if, you know, the educated people don't have kids and then the sort of uh, lower class uneducated. Okay. And they get to the future and just they've trashed the world and yeah. they don't know how to drink water, they drink Gatorade and the president is a wrestler. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, he's, it's worth seeing it alone just for the president's speech in in Congress um, where he's firing, an, I think, an AK-47 and he rocks around <laughs> on a massive, <laughs> massive like, I don't know, monster sort of bike or something. I love that you've watched that. Um, well yeah, high and low culture. That's yeah. it's, it's what it's all about. Um yeah, so there's some of the reasons that people look at, um, you know, around decline. Uh, yeah. Okay. That's, yeah, really helpful to understand. Could I add, could I, I add one more? Uh, I, I did sort of yeah, hint yeah. at it before. Like mission drift, I think, is another one where the, the primary uh, reason that, that – and maybe that's – I'm looking more in big civilizational, but I think you would look at something, an institution, which, say, begins for a particular reason, but then its mission is so drifted. Yes, that it ends up closing because it's not doing what it was originally started for. Yeah, okay. It becomes a zombie institution. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, going through this, you can see so much of this occurring or I guess see it painted out across the last number of generations um, mm. that we've lived through. So let's take some time to have a look at uh, where are we at, I guess, socially, if we're to look at yeah. maybe the West. Yeah. Um, where would you kind of place us in this framework? Well, I mean, part of the story we've been telling with this podcast is, you know, there is a sense where we assumed a lot about the world. Mm. And, you know, probably what we've been talking about a little bit, like things like energy and that the power will always be on, that supply chains will keep working, that you won't get locked down by a pandemic, um, that war may not happen, war probably won't ever happen again in the West. You know, all of that is being smashed. So there's an element that I think definitely we're well into, if not through the third generation assumes it and has entitlement. Yes. Um, you know, I think it's a Henry Cloud's book, Entitlement. Um, I think when you did the internship, oh, yeah. Daniel, we got you guys oh, to yes, read that. Yes, the Entitlement Cure. Entitlement Cure. You know, that's that's something that's spoken about a lot at an individual level, the sense of entitlement in mm. people today. Um, was John, uh, John Townsend. John Townsend, sorry. Um, and, uh, you know, so I think both individually but also – Corporately, as the West, there's a sense of, I think, entitlement and assumption that uh, we can have this world. And, and that's created, you know, I think a lot of the conversations. We've also talked around here, I think, around Engelhart's sort of scale of security, you know, and identity, you know, that if yes. your security is assumed, your existential questions are more around issues of identity and self-expression. Mm. When scarcity comes along and your security is is more up in question, it's more basic, the questions, mm. you know. So I think all of that is happening. Um, so I guess it's really, you know, I would guess depends what country you are, but you know, we're somewhere. You know, you look at Europe has got some as we recall, there's some significant energy yeah. uh, crises coming, particularly for the European winter is going to be, you know, quite quite difficult. You know, we look at the environmental. China, I think, just announced had the worst. It's the worst drought on record. Wow. Europe, you know, 500 years or something. Um, triple dip El Nino is happening. Um, 
you know, so you've got significant environmental stuff going on, which we assumed perhaps we had longer or we could put off, you know. Um, uh, you've got political sort of decay in the United States and other places happening on around the place, polarization, all of these are signs of corruption, mm. you know, and also just straight up massive corruption. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not talked about enough in the world. Uh, it's so fascinating. There's so much to talk about injustice, but the issue of just massive transnational massive corruption uh economic is not spoken about um so i would place us somewhere between i hope we're at three yeah <laughs> um but i think we're somewhere between three and four possibly well into four yeah um, i don't think we're not at bury it stage yet but I, I would put us just moving from three into the beginnings of four mm. stage four so moving from third generation assumes it entitlement into fourth generation neglects it and corruption starts to happen yeah okay would you say that the church, let's have a look at the church, Yes. Um, yeah. is in a different place? Okay, so I think we've talked a lot about um, the church here and, and well, that's because we're a church. Yeah. <laughs> 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 we are a church. Um, it's not just all pastries. Um, so, you know, I, I think that you know, it looks a bit different with the church. And I think the issue of assuming things becomes even stronger. So I feel like yes. part of the Western church is very much, I'll put us in the third stage, strong into third, depending what country you're in, mm -hmm. but strong into the third stage of assuming it. I think generationally we're at a transition, massive transitional point, Yes, which is the baby boomer generation is starting to resign yes. and move into retirement and will start to pass in the next 10 years. So a lot of the energy, and maybe even if you had to sort of look at it, you say in some ways the baby boomer generation, um, you know, maintained it. The ones who stuck around, they mm. maintained some things. You go before that, you look at the builder generation. We, I saw some uh, data the other day on giving, in the church to churches and I think it was Christian NGOs and by far the elder generation, which is the builder generation, yeah. like the generation who gave birth to the boomers, give the most by far. Yeah, and wow. it just declines to the point where sort of Generation Z virtually gives nothing, millennials hardly anything, Gen X not much, boomers mm. a bit. You know, so that's just an example I think of, of – um, you know, the way – we've talked here before about, you know, we're in the car on the freeway and we've just been coasting but now the car's rolled to a halt. So I think that's where we are. So I think a lot of assumptions being made at the moment are, are that seminary Bible college will still be around in five years. Yeah. That's, you know, that church which seems large but has 75% of people in the baby boomer demographic, that, that that's not going to be large. Yes. You know, there'll be denominations that in the next 10 years – you know, lose 75% of their uh, backsides on seats. So I would say the church, we're somewhere between um, third and fourth. Now I'm saying that broadly the church in the West, you know, people listening saying, oh, the American church is this or, you know, the Canadian church is that. I'm trying to be as broad as possible here. Yes. Um, but I think definitely we're at this moment between three and fourth. Um, and it's just fascinating that's happening at the same time that the culture, yes. what's changed is, we were having these conversations five years ago. You wouldn't be looking at the culture moving to the fourth generation of totally, falling, you know, yeah, starting yeah, to yeah. fall apart. Um, so these two things are happening simultaneously. Okay. Well, then, what what do we what do we do with this if we are holding and stewarding the church for the next generation as as leaders and followers of Jesus? Okay. So. Um, to another way of looking at generational decline is a kind of forgetting. Okay. So I, I think we mentioned them before, but um, in their book, How Democracies Die, uh, Ziblatt and uh, yeah. Levinsky. Sounds familiar. Those guys. Yeah, I do remember putting it uh, on. They talked about that institutions decline because they forget their robust norms. Yeah, robust okay. norms are – the values that an institution begins with that are passed on and they're actually hard to codify, they're hard to put into governance, they're hard to pass down in a way that's not life on life mm. and they get forgotten. They, they get forgotten. You know, so part of the conversation in the United States at the moment about the sort of political decay you see in the United States is that people keep talking, oh, the political norms have been broken. Mm. People are like, Trump broke this norm, you know, Biden – 
did his speech the other day and people are like, oh, he's now breaking norms as well. It's like you can see the sort of decay. People are doing stuff they wouldn't have done before mm-hmm. and that's a neglect of norms. Mm. You know, I, I can't remember someone in the office was talking about they saw an interview. Someone was telling me they saw an interview with someone who was talking about, you know, it was a, a Republican or a Democrat from, you know, 30 years ago saying, oh, we used to eat together. We don't eat together anymore. Yeah, you know, okay. so you'd have a fight in the house or whatever, but then you would go and have dinner together and you're still sort of friends. That's decline of norms. Now, um, Samuel Berger talks about essential knowledge, that there's kinds of essential knowledge that that first pioneering startup generation get. Yes. But that's forgotten. Um, and so all of this I would boil down to the first generation discovers the special source, <laughs> the, the ingredients of the special source, and it's passed down through generations, but – Future generations just assume that there's enough of a plentiful supply of the source. That they, they don't, don't know how to make, to make it. it. And yeah. they've forgotten the, the ingredients. And then it's the point that they've got no source left. So I actually think that the good news here is that renewal can come when you discover the special source of the first generation. Mm. Now, I think this is where we're at as the church. And I think that not enough people look at this. I think a lot of people look at, oh, we've got this program or we look at renewal in this way. We've got a heart for it. But do we have the the desire to go back and find the ethic of the first generations? Mm. And and what, what were the ingredients that made the special source? Because if you can return to that, you can turn things around again. So can I ask in that – in that view, does that mean if we do exactly what the first generation did that it's going to bring renewal or is it, you know, is it going to look exactly the same? Great question. Do, yeah. Do you know what I'm kind of asking? I think it often looks different. Yes. But I think there's a posture. Yes. So there's patterns. Yeah. Patterns might look different. Um, but there's actually a posture. Like, you know, if we, if we did everything that John Wesley did – is a renewal going to break out? Now, John Wesley often is lauded for going out and preaching in the fields. Yeah. Um, now, part of the reason contextually he did that isn't just because he just wanted to do mission. It was also that, you know, Charles and John Wesley were sort of banned from speaking in Anglican pulpits in Bristol and London. Yeah, okay. And there was all kinds of laws that if you're a nonconformist or a dissenter versus an Anglican, you know, where you could preach and certain bishops had said, you're not preaching in these places. Mm. So they sort of went and did in the fields because they didn't have anywhere else. Now, yes. That's not our context. You know, I can preach at different churches, you know. So, um, you know, street preaching was an absolute sensation in that day. Yeah. You know, like the fact that people like Benjamin Franklin, you know, and heard, you know, Whitfield and David Garrick, one of the leading actors of the 17th, I'll say 18th century, you know, would go and listen to Wesley and stuff like this. So it was a, a cultural sensation. So if we went and did that pattern, that may not yes. result. But there's a posture. Yeah. There's a posture that you see you know, in a Whitfield or a Wesley. And I think that's partially the essential norms that gets forgotten. Yes, yeah, and it, and it's that ethic of sacrifice. Yes, 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 yes. So that ethic of sacrifice and the postures that um, worked in the past or that um, were, were what led to building something that yes. was then able to be sustained, um, they're the things that we're, we're to look at. Um, but our contexts are completely different. Like totally. a church here in Melbourne is is completely different to a church in totally. I don't know regional. I don't know where somewhere. I mean, I was talking. I was talking to someone. I was talking about this at, in recently. Finland. 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 Thank you, Daniel. Um, I was talking recently at a conference, and I was talking about some of the stories of the Welsh revival. And it was interesting. And often this will happen where someone will come up and they'll be older, and they're like, "My parents lived through that, and yes. I remember this." And for them, it's not just like my parents went to church and they sang a lot in the Welsh revival. Mm-hmm. It's like I remember they they remember what it felt like. Yeah. They remember it's like it's like a lived experience that they saw their parents mm. do. It's like it's like when you. You know, when, when we interviewed Scott Sauls the other week mm-hmm. and, you know, he talked about what it was like to to be discipled by Tim Keller. Yeah. You got the – I understood that, what he was saying, in a different way than if I just read about Tim Keller. Yes. Like you can see the life on – his his life had been touched by Tim Keller. We were experiencing it through Scott's life. Mm. You know, and even last week with David Yeganazzo, like yeah. t- hearing the stories of the, the Iranian, uh, you know, sort of renewal, it's one – one touch away from it. So yes. what are the postures that people take 
um, versus just the patterns. And I think at the moment that's really key with because I think there's a lot of chat around formation and patterns and practices and we talk about that stuff. But patterns and practices without the right postures mm. are not going to bring renewal. Yeah. Mm. Which is challenging in the time we live in because we want that like, or oh, what's the five things I need to do that will yeah. turn this ship around or yes. just give me those tangibles and I'll go do that and make yes. it happen. Um, but what you're saying, it's something deeper than that. And, and this is really key because what institutions will do when they hit crisis mm. is make rules mm. or more bureaucracy. And mm-hmm. I think I think it's Tainter talks about in the rise of or the rise and fall of complex societies. I think I don't I haven't got the title exactly right, but his theory is that his theory of decline, which is a pretty sophisticated one, I think is primarily around that actually sort of bloated bureaucracy. Like societies get more and more complex, they then struggle to deal with that complexity. Yes. They create more complex responses to the complexity, which then creates a, co- a collapse. Yes. So, for example, at the moment, now you just look, I just, Liz Trust, the new Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Mm. Welcome to the job, Liz, um, from Rebuilders. Um, <laughs> that, that, um, if you're listening. If you're, I'm sure she's listening. Um, uh, she'll be at the cafe next week. That, yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, you know, like, so, you know, you had stimulus, you know, a growth of stimulus to do with the GFC, so quantitative easing. You know, and then when the pandemic hit, well, what do we do? Well, we do more of that, more, more. Yes. And then they just said, we're going to do these energy caps and we're going to like, so they're now doing more stimulus, like to deal with the effects of the last stimulus. Do you know what I mean? So it sort of bloats and bloats and create, you know, you're kicking the can down the road. So bureaucracies can often, what they do is, oh, let's get everyone together. Let's get focus groups. Let's all do this. Let's go. Like, what were the things? Like, so they create bureaucratic responses and you do need to codify and you do need to institutionalize. But you can do that and still miss the essential knowledge, the special source, the yes. robust norms. That's why yeah. this is a real danger. So, all, you know, what can happen is just more bureaucracy bloated, you know, in your organization without ever really getting to the sense. So, you just increase the patterns and practices, but you don't get to the posture. Yeah. Well, with that in mind, do you have any um, ways of us understanding what those ingredients of the, the special source, as you call it, uh, yeah, I mean, look again. You know, or, or yes is the short answer. <laughs> the, the caveat is, uh, we at Rebuilders are always just trying to work this stuff out as we do it. You know, yeah. this is very real in our church, mm-hmm. and you know, we're, we're this is like often what you hear on Rebuilders is stuff we were sort of scratching through in team meetings three weeks ago. But I think in thinking about this, I picked out three postures that I think you see in turnaround pioneering generations. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the first one is absolutely horrifying and I need to just give a sort of trigger warning to this um, <laughs> because people will be shocked and drop their pastries. But I, I just think I have never found a first pioneering generation in anything, uh, be it religious or building something, you know, in the secular world that did not have commitment. Yeah. And it was funny the other day, I was thinking about this and, and on Instagram just came up some random thing, a video, I don't even know how, like of these two triathletes talking because I don't follow any triathlete videos and I'm not a triathlete. <laughs> that, that surprises me. <laughs> um, I'm a triathlete of, of pastries. Um, and um, yeah, my pastries got in the way of it, just an incredible triathlete um, career. Mm, it's um, a shame. But it was interesting and there was this young woman who's a triathlete talking and she said the difference between sort of triathletes and normal people who do fitness, she said normal people have an interest or a sort of an affection for something. Oh, I'd love to get fit. I'd love to run that marathon. But triathletes have commitment. And she said commitment is what makes you turn up again and again and again when you don't feel like it, when it's raining, when mm. you don't feel great, when you're depressed, whatever, you keep moving towards that goal of flourishing. So if you think about institutions, institutions are repeated patterns that humans do in a social form towards a future flourishing. Now, what undermines institutions is entitlement. Commitment's actually in some ways the opposite of entitlement because entitlement is wanting the flourishing without the responsibility or doing what gets the flourishing. Yes. Commitment ensures that you build towards the flourishing regardless of what your, let's put it in biblical terms, your flesh is fighting against. So we have this, you know, biblical vision of renewal. What's going to stop you is when your flesh gets in the way. Commitment 
helps us push through that. Mm. And I think this is one of the huge challenges in the church. You know, if we're looking at what's what's the great threats to the social order, it's energy crises, it's war, it's blah, blah, blah. The big threat for emerging generations in the church that will cause a civilizational decline in churches and Christian organizations is a lack of commitment. Yeah. And literally people will openly tell you they're commitment phobic. And, and, you know, I think what we're seeing is if repeated patterns move us towards the good, you're now seeing, particularly after the pandemic, in sort of this languishing moment of the pandemic, people are coming every week and they're coming every two weeks. People are coming every two weeks, coming every four weeks. There is less and less commitment. People are more likely to move around. And we might get into why some of that is, I think, in perhaps a future episode because I think yes. some interesting sort of reasons why this is all happening. But the special source ingredients that every pioneering generation has is commitment so if you're out there and you're like, I've got a heart for a new loan, rebuild this thing, I'm just going to give it to you straight. You are not going to build anything without a commitment. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's, that's personal commitment, but that's also inviting others to be exactly. committed. Exactly. Yeah. A community of commitment. Mm-hmm. You know, and if just you've got a personal commitment and you're surrounded by others who haven't got a commitment, um, you're going to get burnt out yeah. and it'll fall over. And that commitment, I think, has to come from a spiritual place. Yes. Yeah. It can't, you know, there's grit your teeth. You know, there'd be triathletes out there who are just freaks have just got incredible commitment. But for ordinary human beings, which I presume most people are listening are, that it's actually when you think about Jesus' commitment to us of what he does on the cross, mm. that then grace, that is the the out of what our commitment must flow. That our saviour was willing to go to the cross for us. And then in disciples, we ask, well, what are we willing to do for him? Yes. Um, so that uh, commitment has Christ-centered commitment, number one, special source ingredient. Great. I just need a moment there. Um, all right. Number Spe- two. Special source ingredient number two. I should cooking this up on the on the stovetop. <laughs> Uh, this is the original ethics, sacrifice. You, you, you do mm. not get a generation who's like, I want to keep my options open. I want everything I want now. I want all the freedoms I have now and I'm going to build something incredible. Yeah. You're not going to have it. You can't have it all, um, which is the name of my power ballad that I'm currently composing. You're doing backing vocals this afternoon. Yeah, multi-layers uh, here in the studio um, and, and, and screaming guitar solos. Um, <laughs> can't, can't Sorry, I have no musical ability if anyone is listening at, at home. Um, sacrifice. It, you, you, you have to sacrifice. It's a narrow path. Commitment will inevitably lead to sacrificial living, you know, mm. like sacrificial giving. You know, like we, we were in a conversation, again, just being honest, you know, we're talking about, you know, like like many churches where, you know, looking at giving and, you know, as we sort of emerged and this is a challenge for many churches and, and part of the conversation was, you know, uh, you know, how do we how do we get back to normal? And I think it was you, Liddy. Was it you? I don't know. It could have been. I don't know what you're about to say. Uh, said the actual vision of sacrificial giving. Was it you? Might have been me. I don't know. It's just a while ago it. since we. Just claim I, it. I definitely said it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but like, what if instead of um, no, 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 it was not you. It was in in a board meeting. Um, okay. Um, similar. I can similar. throw my voice. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, throw your voice to the board. <laughs> but just this idea that um, sacrificial giving actually opens up something that just getting to the baseline of what you need to operate doesn't. Yes. You can get to the baseline and continue to do things from an earthly manner, Mm. but actually sacrificial giving opens up something spiritually. Yes. That, you know, when you turn up and you're the only one at the prayer meeting at 6 a.m., it just does something that it doesn't when it's an easy hour for you. Like there's just something sacrificed. Now, obviously this needs to be in balance and, and I'm not saying, you know, after a season where many people are rethinking, the life script of high performance and running around like a headless chicken. So it's not doing more and more and more and more. It's actually doing less and less and less, but doing the things with absolute kingdom leverage, yes. which comes through a sacrificial heart. Again, too, this flows from the cross. You know, Jesus sacrificed mm. uh, on, you know, on the, God sacrificed his only son. Like this, this, this sense that, um, you know, we, we must give at this point. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's good. Perseverance is the third special yeah. source ingredients. Commitment, 
sacrifice, perseverance is this then going forward in time and keeping on going. This is also a recognition that's not always going to feel great. Perseverance comes against the cultural uh, blockage of what we do when it doesn't feel good because freedom is a huge cultural idol but also good feelings are a cultural idol and people who build stuff. Like I think there's this myth in the culture. I mean, I think I showed an ad like – a while ago in church, and I think it was for like a start. There was some guy who like start yellow. If you remember this, it was like an ad, and I haven't even said what it is. <laughs> no, so you guys are looking at me strangely. Um, and it was like a startup guy, and he starts some company with his mates, and then you see like a, a little bit in the future, he goes from a great idea to like he's in some cool like work co-working space, and you know surrounded by cool people, and they're working all his friends, and they're working together on this business, and that's his new work in reality. It's like a combination of recreation, social life, and work, and it's the ultimate dream. And the ad ends. Do you remember that? Ad? Yeah, I remember it. Yeah, I yeah. don't. Good. Don't remember what it was for, but it's probably yeah. some banking ad or something. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's almost the vision today that, oh, I want to find this thing to do that's going to be pioneering, you know, do it for God, you know, like, and and it's the more I do it, the better I'm going to feel. Yeah. Mm. Whereas, you know, I think if, if you look at, you know, the scriptures speak of perseverance and they mm. speak of that as an element of discipleship and continuing on when things feel bad and are inconvenient and difficult and when people come against you, when it's not popular in the world, uh, you know, perseverance is is one of those postures that every sort of first, you know, generation who builds something must have. So, commitment, yeah, sacrifice, perseverance, three postures that people need has to come from us submitting ourselves to the Holy Spirit. Mm. Um, but we can't turn anything around. We can't build anything around. Those are the robust norms that are currently declining. And any organization, you come up with your whiz-bang plans, that's great, but it's going to fall over without those key, key elements. And I wonder, yeah, um, they're great. And it's just reminded me of something that we've talked about um, a number of times is when you are discouraged and when Mm. you are like, what on earth am I doing here? You come back to that that primary call. Mm. What has God asked me to do? What has God asked me to lead? What has God asked me to put my hands to? Mm. And I'm going to commit to do that. I'm going to sacrifice to do that. And I'm going to persevere in doing that. Mm. And if you're doing that with a group of people who are also on that same path, yeah, that's mm. that's what the kingdom is, right? And and just last week's episode, for those who listened, I just think of those three postures in the Iranian church mm. were all there, mm-hmm. you know, to the point where they couldn't even run a program. You know, like, but they incredible commitment to the gospel, mm. incredible sacrifice for the gospel, you know, and, and perseverance, you know. Um, mm. You know, so that story last week, it's not even like, well, how were they using, how are they using technology? Like, it's not even that. It's like, that's all secondary to these key, key postures. Mm. And I think yes. you're right. It goes back to that first call. And it's interesting too, you often forget, I don't know if you've ever found the thing, you look back on a journey like, oh, actually that thing I've been wrestling with, actually God called me to that a year ago and actually the year before and I just keep forgetting and you've got to remember to go back yes, to that. Yes, yes. Um, so this forgetting is a key element of decline but remembering the call yes. is a key element of renewal. Yeah. Awesome. Love this chat. Well, we'll leave it there for today. Um, we'll probably explore a little bit more on mm. this um, mm. in subsequent weeks thank you so much for joining us if you do want to grab a list of the numerous books that mark mentioned today uh, you can subscribe to our mailing list by heading to rebuilders.co and clicking on the appropriate link and we'll catch you next week 